Hello, everybody. Welcome to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm trying to mimic a very relaxed tone because that is what we all need right now, right? <laughs> oh, man, what a world we live in. I mean, I, I can only use humor uh, to kind of cope with a lot of the uh, stresses that we're all going through. But anyways, I'm your host, Ray Harkins. We are talking about independent music. That is why you come here. That is why you are using this as a tool for distraction or uh, edification or uh, just frankly a good hang because that's that's what I try to provide on a week to week basis with people who are uh, you know creating an independent music world whether that's playing in bands or record labels or whatever the case may be um, this one I am particularly excited about because it's a different angle I don't get very many booking agents to come on the show uh, for no other reason other than um, you know maybe it's not the quote unquote like sexiest music industry job even though in my opinion it is the life's blood of it. Um, and Nick Storch is a person who I've known for many years professionally, um, is also a great human being. And I reached out to him to be like, Hey, would you be interested in coming on the show? Cause you know, I know sometimes, uh, people who work sort of behind the scenes in the music industry don't necessarily like, like doing interviews, you know, or like being, uh, you know, kind of in the front of the, uh, the, the public sphere as it were, but Nick was awesome to do it. And, uh, we actually recorded this interview before the pandemic all happened. So, you know, his life has drastically changed. And, uh, you know, frankly, I, my heart goes out to basically everybody who has been affected, not only the music industry, but the world at whole, because it's a, uh, it's troubling, scary times. And, uh, yeah, I just want you, if you're feeling alone in some capacity, I hope this podcast is a lifeline for you. You can also email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I'm always always down to chat. I'm not a, you know, professional therapist because, you know, I, I have no medical degree whatsoever. But I try to be for the people, try to be there for people uh, in so many different uh, ways. And that's this, this podcast is definitely a way for me to work on my mental health. And I know a lot of people have expressed uh, that this discussion, this medium of podcasting is very, uh, you know, meaningful to them when they're sorting through not only their own personal, uh, you know, uh, headspace, but then, uh, you know, being able to just kind of, you know, tune into two other people talking. So anyways, that's a long, that's a long preamble, but I'm excited. Nick Storch is here and, um, yeah, we're just going to dive right into it because, uh, yeah, I, everybody is, uh, just wanting to tune into something else besides the, never-ending parade of, uh, you know, horrors that are existing in the uh, the world outside. So, anyways, here's Nick, and I uh, will talk to you at the end of the episode. And I, I think we ran across each other the first time when I was working at uh, Century Media Records, you know, gosh, early early 2000s, I want to say, um, working with uh, Steve Joe and that crew over there. Um, yep. And I just, I, it's one of those things where it was like, you know, I mean, at the time I was, gosh, I don't know, like 20, 21 and like, you know, Taken was still touring and like we were, you know, doing a lot of stuff, but like, I just didn't, uh, the music industry was such a weird business of like, I expected most people to be mean, like just not, not responsive, like when I was emailing them or whatever, but you were always, uh, I don't know, courteous and you were always like, you know, like, I, I don't know, just kind. And I think that, um, I don't know, not everybody is like that, Nick. And I don't know. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if you've certain, noticed that about yourself, but, <laughs> uh, I'm certain there are folks out there who will argue this, that I'm, an, I'm anything, but, um, sure. but in my head, despite being 41 years old, two children and a wife, I still think I'm a 17 year old kid from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 
So it's just, I'm still grateful to be here. And I, it's not like, I'm not trying to be, you know, falsely modest. It's just more of, I, Steve, 19 years in, I didn't anticipate that this would be, I'd be so fortunate. Um, and that's not to act like it was a miracle that it happened, but it was a lot of hard work. And then you blink and oh, crap, here I am. Um, I don't know. I'm still grateful. I still do this. I still want to do this for the reason that I love music first and foremost. Um, I don't want to be jaded. I don't want to be miserable. So yeah, so, I don't yeah. know. I try. I do want to be, the job is hard enough. It's very unpredictable. And so I'd like to try to be as nice as I can, but I won't lie to you. I've had, <laughs> I can hold a grudge, you know, just as good as the next guy though. Right. Right. Well, and I think especially too, because I, the, the notion of the music business is that like, you know, especially coming from the scene that, you know, we came from like the punk and hardcore scene of like, you know, don't trust the suits, don't trust the people behind the scenes. And that, you know, like record labels are cool up to a point like that whole distrust. And I remember it being such a thing in the, you know, late nineties and early two thousands where it's like once bands had managers and booking agents, it was kind of, you know, met with a lot of resistance in many respects. Absolutely. And Absolutely was. I remember starting as an agent, bands would sometimes not have representation, maybe until their second or third record. Uh, and I think as when we were coming up at the same time, there was a viable business. And so you had all these people who were living this as kids who didn't want to get a real job. And then they're thrust into the business. And I think it just accelerated the process for artists to get thrown into the business. Right, right. And I'm sure you encountered that when you started to, you know, like work with bands and try to have to build a genuine rapport with them while them also being kind of like, well, yeah, I know Nick's like a hardcore kid, but at the same time, like, I don't know, he maybe has crossed over. Mm, yeah. It, it's hard. You know, sometimes I think back on those years and go, how did I get my, how did I get my shoes on it every day, let alone do this job to get to this point? Um, right. right. And I think I just was fortunate. I, I don't even know. It's it's such a, you know, I had some really great mentors for the first, you know, I would say good four or five years of my career. Um, and I, I found that I was able to balance remaining a fan. And I was in a position to be able to kind of have that in addition to being forced to learn new things. So I don't know. I've tried. You have to maintain a balance. But of course, over time, you change and you see things a little bit differently um, because at the end of the day, it is a business. So you have to juxtapose where you come from, where you're going and all that stuff that goes into it. So, yeah, no, I totally get that. Uh, we'll hit on more of that later. But the, uh, you know, cool. you as a person, um, you know, like like mm -hmm. you mentioned, you, you were born and raised in the sort of, you know, Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania area. Um, what was uh, were you actually born there or did you come up at a different spot? No, I'm from Lancaster, born and raised. Uh, didn't leave until I was 18 to go to college. Got it. And your experience in, in growing up in, you know, because a lot of people like to call it Lancaster, which obviously is not the right way to say it. <laughs> that's correct. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> Many of shows people, I think I remember Mike Ness of all people calling it Lancaster and the crowd very aggressively reminding him to say it Lancaster. Right. Um, <laughs> right. That, was, that was a common experience at, at shows there. Sure. So. Well, I think too, because we have a Lancaster in California. So, and that is like right. 
but yeah, your point is well taken. Um, so, you know, I guess walk me through your experience, you know, growing up like brothers and sisters, you know, like uh, mom and dad in the house. What was your family structure like? Uh, mom and dad, sister. Um, you know, I, I, until I was 18 years of age, it was a pretty painfully boring, normal existence. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, my parents were good to me. You know, we all had our trials and tribulations, but nothing out of the ordinary. Um, I think I went through all the same normal high school things that every kid in the burbs went through. I mean, I have no crazy story to tell you about, you know, any of the bad things that go on. I, I think I was fairly fortunate with that, you know. Um, and my parents were relatively supportive, despite pretty early on show, showing a desire to want to pay attention to music. Right. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that experience of the, you know, suburb living and then once you start to uh, get into different things in regards to subcultures, whether it's, you know, skateboarding or punk or hardcore or whatever, um, people are just kind of like, I mean, especially parents, it's like, huh, I don't, well, this doesn't seem harmful, but this is kind of weird. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember, I almost remember vividly, my sister and I decided to lip sync a song for my parents in our living room. I want to say that it was, I think it was Bon Jovi or something of that ilk. Um, and I remember we did it. They're like, oh, that's really cute. But hey, don't take this too serious. And I swear to God, and I hold it to this day, my brain clicked at that moment. Like, <laughs> you don't want me to take this seriously. Boy, okay, you're it. wrong. And, yeah. from, <laughs> and that point forward... Uh, I mean, Bon Jovi was my first favorite band, but then I discovered Motley Crue on a family vacation in California. Um, we'd been staying in hotels following my dad. He was a traveling salesman. And I saw the Dr. Feelgood video in a hotel room, and it, that changed my life permanently. The fire, the tattoos, the scary-looking guys, Mick Mars specifically. Um, but, yeah, it was. I never turned back from that point. And with each passing, you know, day, week, month, year, I pulled away from sports and sort of the standard things that you're, you know, you're supposed to do, I guess. Um, I just kept getting closer and closer to music as the only thing I ever cared about. Right. Right. And do you think the, the attraction was, um, I guess just like the, you know, the theatrical nature of it. I mean, I, I, I get the visceral reaction as a 10 year old watching, you know, that video, um, or the kind of danger or the fact that like, you know, none of your friends were maybe into that. Uh, no, it was more, I mean, it's hard to go back all that time, yeah, but I, I, you know, I think it was the music itself was catchy, but it was a little dangerous. Um, you know, they, they, I mean, they were, they were not scary as, and I'm going to run and hide, but they were just crazy looking. And I was, you know, I was into it, you know, cause I think Bon Jovi was a good entry point because it's, it's a little safe, you know, it's, you know, the lyrics aren't crazy, but you know, and then I put Motley Crue with skulls and fire and Dr. Field, the kind of you know, crazy name already. And then I saw the album cover and I thought, wow, that's, that's wild. And I actually would draw the, I'm sure you remember when you get your textbooks, you would take a paper bag and cover it to protect it. Yep. And I would, um, I recreated the entire album cover in colored pencils. Um, like drew it out in pencil and I colored it in perfectly. Cause I was, I listened to the record every day on my way to school in fifth grade. That's a pretty impressive recreate. I'm uh, the recreation of that art. Like on, yeah, on, yeah that's pretty good. <laughs> I was just, I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll, I would imagine we'll touch on this, but I'm in a, 
Uh, I have a very addictive personality, and so I literally would run the record every day, you know, last stop on the little Walkman. Um, and I just, it's all I wanted was, you know, I wanted to be Tommy Lee. I once told my mom at dinner time I wanted to do drugs like Motley Crue. Um, how she didn't take me upstairs and beat the crap out of me is pretty crazy, but she took it, you know, just kind of let it roll off her back and ignored me. Um, but I was, I was all in. They were to me the greatest thing ever. I still love them very, very much. Sure, sure. Uh, and y- your sister, older or younger? Uh, my sister's three years younger than me. Okay. Got it. Got it. So yeah, you were, um, yeah, like, you know, she wasn't like showing this stuff to you. This was all kind of, you know, you just like randomly finding it by watching TV or whatever. Wait, say that again. I'm sorry. The, uh, like you weren't, you know, influenced by your sister. Like, you know, you're, if you were the younger sibling, I didn't have like an older brother or sister. I mean, I had no one older. Actually, no, let me take that back. I had an uncle who, he wasn't into the heavier side. Like I remember being like, what about Metallica? And he just wasn't into it, but he loved ACDC. He loves Bon Jovi um, and Guns N' Roses. He got me into them and uh, I was playing baseball and I, I was a little kid. Um, I just wasn't very good. He's like, if you get a hit, I'm going to give you some Guns N' Roses. And yeah, it took me a while, but I did it. And then he literally handed me a giant box full of dubbed uh tapes. And that, I think that also played was a big part of it. Uh, yeah, you had this whole treasure trove of stuff. Totally. I mean, and I, I, I shouldn't take away that Guns N' Roses was also a pretty big influence. Again, the, these anthemic songs, these crazy-looking guys. You know, I mean, Axl Rose back then, I think, when being a kid from the Burb was the wildest thing I ever had seen. You know, almost more so than, than Motley Crue. Sure. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. I like that. Um, and so, like you said, like as you were, you know, going to high school and kind of having a typical suburban existence as it were, um, you know, what kind of like, what kind of student did you find yourself being like, you know, like you said, you were doing sports and stuff like that. Um, you know, what kind of kid were you in high school? Oh God, painfully mediocre. Um, <laughs> you know, scared of my own shadow, wanted to be rebellious, but not really. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm five, six, so I, you, know, you can imagine I'm a little kid, um, I remember they asked me to play football in my freshman year and I was like, no way I'm going to get my, my ass kicked. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of the end for me with sports, at least team sports. And, um, I, man, I, I was nothing exceptional about me at that time. It took me kind of a while to find my place. Even when I got to college, the first two years were a write off. I didn't know what I was doing with myself. Um, none of it made sense why I was there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, because here I was, this kid, I, all I wanted to do was go to the grocery store with my mom and get Ripped Magazine and Metal Edge Magazine and, you know, listen to my tapes in my room and, you know, read the lyric sheets and, and just that's all I, I cared about. So. No, that's awesome that you were. Um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of times, too, I mean, I'm sure you can, uh, you know, attest to this in, in some respects where it's like you know, a, 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 especially a guy trying to navigate himself in, you know, the world of high school and supposed to be, you know, exuding some masculinity, whatever that may mean, whether that's like you said, trying out for football, but just like, yeah, I'm, I'm short. And like, I'm, <laughs> I'm realizing my limitations on this front. Yeah. And I just, you know, I had a pretty, you know, at the time I didn't have anyone connected to the, the underground world of music. And so, you know, as as Nirvana hit, and of course, obviously the hair metal disappeared, you know, Nirvana comes in and grunge is a big deal, you know, which had its strands of harder rock at the time as well. I got into that. 
Um, you know, and then, and I think that started the concept of sort of counterculture to me because Motley Crue was still kind of a big band. So I don't think it was like as scary. They were kind of just there, you know what I mean? Um, and, but then when grunge happened, I think that was a little more subversive, a little more counterculture-y. But then when, you know, for me, when Dookie hit, that was the massive change because then it really was about not conforming and about being as kind of wacky as you could be. Sure. Yeah. That, that, that was such a huge record for so many people. I mean, like the, you know, mm-hmm. the year that punk broke, it definitely, it, it influenced the suburbs in such ways that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it sent us all off on <laughs> these weird paths that we're on now. Totally. And like, it took me a second. I remember when it hit and it took me a second to kind of give it a chance. I was like, I don't know about this. And then it just the corner, I turned the corner and that was, that was the end of it for me. And I never, and then it was, I was only, I was very much into that kind of stuff. And then slowly but surely my friends and I ventured downtown and we're going to the record stores and okay, you're going to buy operation Ivy. I'm going to buy the rancid. Um, and then I'm going to buy the gorilla biscuits and you're going to buy, you know, whatever. And we just kept slowly just consuming my best friend, Mike, who is uh, still my best friend to the day. Um, I mean, we just traded tapes constantly every on our summer vacations. We would just drive from record store to record store at least once a week and, sh- and just dig through everything we could find, um, searching for something new. Um, yeah. So cool. <laughs> I, I just love, I love the description of the, I mean, especially as a kid, because you have limited resources. So it's like, you know, you and your friend have 20 bucks. You're like, okay, obviously we're not going to buy the same things because we need to experience as much music as possible. So you get this and I get this. I love that. Oh my gosh. And we would, I mean, I, I, we used to hang out in front of this one classroom and like, that's where we sat before the bell rang and we would, Hey man, did you make that tape? Of course I did. Here you go. And then we'd trade and I mean, we still to this day text each other about bands and, you know, he's not in the, he's not in the business in any way, but still has, still likes to go to shows a lot. He's got, he's friends with some old hardcore bands that he went to college with. Um, cause we, none of us were smart to go to the same college and continue the party that we created. Um, <laughs> sure. in, I, in high school, it was just being like this tight group, but we've thank God remained friends for all these years. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, honestly, it's probably exceptionally corny, but it really was the thread of my friend, my friendships with those people. And still is the thread of every friendship I have. Um, and even down to my wife, you know, cause she was in the business. That's awesome. That's really cool. I, I do like it. I mean, this actually kind of goes back to the, the first thing that I was asking you where, um, I, I thought it was always interesting too, because, you know, clearly, um, most, you know, hardcore bands that existed, uh, there was no sort of career path idea. Like, you know, no. the be- yeah, the best, the best idea you could get from it is that like, Oh, cool. I'm coming home with 500 bucks that, you know, I could maybe pay my rent for a month, but then of course I got to go work at the bagel shop or whatever. But like, right. The idea of people being able to take what they've learned from the, their, you know, bands or, you know, show promoter stuff. And then like actually applying it to like the real world and careers and stuff. I just found it interesting because I mean, you know, there's many people, you know, beyond just yourself that I witnessed in the music industry, but I, I just didn't, it, it, to me, it, it was the logical evolution, but a lot of people didn't consider it like that where it was like, Oh yeah, well I'm going to do this and then I'm going to take these things. And then I'll, I'll not like you could articulate it, you know, not like when you started, you know, being a booking agent, you're like, I am taking these skills that I learned from, you know, the hardcore scene or whatever. But did you notice that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I do. And I remember, so like, as I said, my first two years at college were terrible. I, I, I was just a joke. Um, I mean, I, I did enough to get by, not to get in trouble with my folks. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing. My third year, it all changed for me. And 
I don't know what clicked, but I just threw myself at working. I, I got an internship at the Trocadero with Robbie Redcheeks, and that really was the opening. And if it wasn't for him and him looking for an intern with flyers at the Relapse Record Store, I, I, I wouldn't be here. Because um, then I think I was the first guy to respond. I showed up. I was just this eager, super eager kid. I just wanted to work. Um, and then I worked at Magnet Magazine. I would show up in my H2O shorts in my dorky hardcore clothes. And there are all these indie people being like, you like Tom Waits? I'm like, who's Tom Waits? And, you know, <laughs> learning about all these bands and artists that, you know, to this day, a lot of them I still don't care for, but became exposed to other people. And, um, and then I worked at the newspaper because I just kept trying to find more avenues to be a part of things that I don't know. Cause I didn't know anything else. Like to this, I, if, if I didn't do this, I don't know how I would live because I've tried, I've tried to have hobbies that aren't music related. And I, my body, my brain just go, nope, not having it. Rockabilia.com is the place where you need to buy all of your band merch. We are stuck inside and we need entertainment, right? Well, Rockabilia.com has puzzles for you. They've got posters that you can plaster your room with. And you can use the code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. And uh, let me tell you, they are the real deal. All officially licensed. Bands get paid. You're supporting an independent business. They ship from the middle of the country. So you're getting your order very fast. I love them and what they do, and they're just uh, they're just the best. So you need to order from them immediately. Is it a matter of figuring out what it is you need in your closet? I think so. So open it up, see what band shirts you're lacking, and buy it from them. So rockabilly.com, PC 100 words, that gets you 15% off your order. And especially, too, I'm sure, you know, as you started to become, you know, more entrenched in the music industry, you know, you, when you have that shorthand with a person who has a similar experience to you, like, i.e., you know, they grew up playing shows or, you know, were in bands and stuff like that. You have this like immediate level of trust where you're just like, oh, you get it. Like, I don't, I, 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 you know, I don't need to um, think about it too much. Like we come from the same cloth. Yes. Well, it's kind of the old story. Like when I'm sure it's the same when you were a kid, you went to the mall and you saw some kid in a, a bad religion T-shirt just underground enough and you're like okay we're, you can make eye contact and be like we're probably going to be friends this is going to be cool and you know it's the same thing like oh you liked that band oh we're we're, we're already good you know right <laughs> yeah totally it's like the more the more random and obscure you can get you'd be like oh dude you're really good <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what were Absolutely. you uh, what were you studying in college and what college did you go to I went to LaSalle University in Philadelphia. I studied communications because um, it was the closest to the music business as I could get. I mean, I made every – I did not think through any of these decisions. I know a lot of kids these days, like, man, they got it all planned out. I, I was like, oh, it's expensive. It's probably good. I'll just go there and figure it out. <laughs> sure. And – well, because I've only visited three schools. I went to Shippensburg, which was out in the boonies, and I only liked it because I went there on a tra- for a track meet. And I was like, oh, this is cool. It's like – summer camp you get to eat in a big dining hall and have all this here you want i checked out temple university and my father was like no way <laughs> you're gonna get eaten alive and then we went to LaSalle, and it was so close to home and i was playing in a very very not good band um and in my head i was like we're gonna be huge and um so it kind of allowed me to stay close and go home on the weekends and um all that kind of stuff so yeah it was like again it all threads back to the music but i i studied communications and picked up English as a minor just because I could do it. So sure. Got it. Um, and I presume, you know, like you mentioned, because you hopped around to so many different things that were, you know, directly related to the music industry, you 
you kind of didn't maybe care exactly where you ended up in the industry. You just knew that you wanted to work with music in some capacity. Oh yeah. I mean, my senior, my right before the start of right before the holiday break of my last semester, or yeah, going into my last semester, I went to my boss at the truck, John Hampton, who's still at Live, who's at Live Nation in Philadelphia. I was like, dude, I'm graduating. I don't know what to do with myself. Like, I don't know anybody. And it's Philadelphia, great city, but there's not a huge booming music business at the time. Um, and he's like, uh, uh, I know this woman named Eva. I'll I'll call her and he sets it up. I get I get a job with her. Um, like, I start interning, I guess, right away. Um, like February of my last semester, I'm already booking bands. I already have a this tiny little roster. Um, and that, uh, that last semester, I was booking bands. I remember taking my last final, throwing my stuff in the car, the crappy car, took the final. I went back to booking bands, and I've done the same thing for over for 19 years now. Right. <laughs> so I, it was it was all I could get. I didn't, you know, I was I didn't I was in no position to bargain with anybody. Yeah. I was like, uh, sure. And then it was like, well, here, you know, and then I started meeting bands and. You know, here I am getting like free records and getting shows for free. And at the time, you know, Jade Tree was in Delaware, which wasn't very far from uh, the very, yeah, they were in Wilmington, Delaware. So I was in Philly. So all their like developing cool stuff was coming through town and those guys were hanging out. So it's just a really fertile, cool time for shows. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what's exciting when you start to get, you know, involved is you start to, you know, all these things start to happen in regards to, like you said, all the, you know, the quote unquote perks of the industry, as it were. But then also just the um, the feeling of actually being able to, you know, make an impact on these bands, whether it's, you know, signing them, whether it's, you know, booking them their first tour or whatever, like that has to feel pretty incredible still. Um. I don't, it's taken me a long time to fully grasp it, what I'm doing. Like in the sense that you get, you just develop this such tunnel vision in your life with, with this. Cause you're constantly chasing the, the um, you're constantly chasing the calendar and time. And um, I think it's only in the last handful of years with working with some of these artists and actually being able to go back a second, like 10 years and go, Oh my gosh, look, what we've done with this artist. And this is where they were. This is where they're going. And I think from the beginning, I just, I was just grateful to have a job and something. I didn't have to ask my dad for money. Um, right. And I, and again, I still, you know, I talk about this with my wife very often. I'm just grateful that we can have a nice life. Our, our kids are looked after. We can put food on the table. I don't have to dress up, which I know in these modern times doesn't mean anything to probably kids now. But when I was a kid, you, you dressed up for everything. And I would get yelled at by my parents to, you know, tuck your shirt in, look nice. You gotta, you know, you gotta show up and look like you want it. And, I never wanted to play that game. I just wanted to wear a t-shirt and hang out with my friends and listen to music and do something cool. And so, and not, again, not to sound falsely modest, I'm just grateful that I never had to play the game on anyone else's terms. You sure. know, um, sure, sure. it was worth all the, you know, all the crazy hours and all the, you know, the first, I'd say the first eight years of my career was a significant amount of personal sacrifice. Hey, you know, I barely saw my friends I didn't do anything. It just worked all the time. Sure, sure. So, you just threw, yeah, you threw yourself. Am I answering it. the question? Yeah, am I answering the question? Sorry, I feel like maybe I'm veering to the left. Or to no, the right here. no, no, no. You do this. Uh, w- welcome to the world of podcasting, my friend. <laughs> That's exactly what it's about. <laughs> yeah, if you if if people uh, answer succinctly, uh, then this would be a, a ten minute podcast. You don't need that. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair play, fair play. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and so, you know, to, to your point, like as you started to, um, you know, cause like you said, you didn't have any real experience booking bands. Like, you know, you were, you were kind of learning in real time and, you know, as they say, you know, building the airplane as it's, uh, you know, landing or whatever. Um, yes. There, um, you know, there had to have been some, you know, real, uh, and, and I don't mean, I don't mean to bring this up because like, I'm trying to embarrass you or anything, but there, you know, the learning things that you have, um, you know, the, the learning experiences you have when you make errors and, and, and mess up yes. of like, Oh yes, yes. Like I should have done that. Do you have uh, one or two moments earlier in your career where it's just like, Oh crap. Like, uh, yeah, I messed up on that. And, uh, you know, this, this is what happened. Um, nothing specific, nothing specific comes to mind, but I can recall certain big, big things that happened that were mm-hmm. sort of, you know, you come to the, like the signpost and you're like, well, do I go left or do I, or do I go right? And, you know, being fired by my first big client was, was painful. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been 10 years. I don't even, it's been a long time since I worked with Cody and Cambria. And, you know, I, when I took them on, no one knew the, the singer was a guy. They're like, is that a girl? No one right. knew what to make of it. <laughs> right. And, you know, we just took a shot, you know, Steve Reddy called Tim Bohr, my boss at the time. And he was like, you got to do it. Cause those, those guys were like old hardcore friends. And, and I was like, okay, you know, Tim was like, all right, we'll do it, you know, unsure of what would happen. And, you know, by golly, it worked. And, you know, we, I think we were just waiting. We were grateful every day. It kept growing and it was a challenging project. But then once it was off to the races, it was off to the races. And, you know, uh, I probably haven't, I don't, I don't speak about it too much, you know, but I will say that, how do I put this? It took me a long time to be okay with it. It took me a long time to, except that this was just part of it. Um, you know, I thought when I got the phone call that they were going to leave, I was devastated because I thought I had already dodged the bullet. I thought, you know, cause I woke up every day thinking it's today, the day they're going to fire me. Um, cause like, I mean, you know, I was, I was young. I didn't know anything else. I was just grateful to be there and it was, but it hurt pretty bad just because I was with it from, they were, you know, we're sleeping in their van together to I'm out. Um, so it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. and it took me a long time to accept that, Sometimes there's reasons that have nothing to do with you. Sometimes like there's a, ver- there's so many different things that can happen. And, um, you know, but it was, it, it still has affected me in the terms that have helped me be able to see the forest for the trees and see how things are going to acknowledge how like, you know, I have to be preemptive in everything that I do for my clients. So I think that was a big help for me. And then the other one that I think has stuck with me the most uh, on a positive was that first time I routed a tour for Baroness with their manager, uh, I brought it to my boss and she was like, I, I hear, I, I came in all cheery. Like, this is a great routing. She's like, what the fuck is this? You can't send this to them. I'm like, what do you mean? All the drives are doable. And she's like, do you see the zigzagging you're doing? And was told a story about how ACDC's rule was you could never go down the same road twice. So everything had to be a nice, clean, straight line. You couldn't do, Philadelphia, then Boston, and New York. It had to be Philly, New York, Boston. And it's just kind of, it's stuck with me since. And so I route things very differently now. Um, and obviously there's extenuating circumstances, but that was a pretty, you know, I literally thought I nailed it. It was like, oh, I'm going to look like a hero to these people. It's very much the opposite. Right. You're like, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. I guess maybe they don't want to drive the 80, 15 times or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like sometimes bands just don't tell you, like they're mad about it in the moment. By the time the tour is over, they forgot and then whatever, water under the bridge. And, you, you know, I think you forget this stuff. And, 
you know, uh, and look, everybody's different. You know, some bands don't care, some bands do. Uh, but it was a big learning. It, it was a big learning moment. I was shocked. I was like, really? They said that to you? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And, and like, like you mentioned, you, uh, you know, you played in bands like, so when, you know, was your first band kind of like in high school or did you start a band in college? Like when did that, uh, that band life transpire for you? All high school. Um, I was in a, I played in a really, really crappy, um, like, gosh, I guess when grunge was a thing, I tried to be in that and I was saying, I couldn't sing. I couldn't play drums to save my life. Okay. That ended as I was getting into punk rock. Then I got into a, a band with a, a pair of brothers um and we played i look back on it finally because it was pretty awesome that we got to do, even do the few shows out of state that we did but um man we were like the worst bouncing souls cover band ever um <laughs> love it <laughs> what, what was that what, what was the name of the band if you have it we were called this <laughs> we were called the side effects with an a <laughs> oh that's good i like it i like yeah, it yeah yeah uh i mean we didn't actually cover their songs but we, we desperately wanted to be everything that they were I mean, you know, we listened to Maniacal Laughter. It's like, it's like, that's what we wanted to be. And our singer couldn't sing. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't great. Um, but it's just, oh man, we just want to hang out and go to punk shows and, you know, play. That's all we wanted. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and like you said, there was no, um, I presume there was no vision of like, oh man, like, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're get, we got some momentum. We got some, uh, some traction. There's, <laughs> there, there's a, there's a future uh, um, for this. I'll tell you a, a very embarrassing story. I don't think I've ever told anybody this. That crazy. But we sent our demo to Lookout Records, and I got a response back in the mail, which I think was a you know very commonplace at the time. And it said, if we like it, we'll call you. For some other reason, I thought it said, they like us, we'll, they'll call us. So I ran home. I got home. I showed my mom, and then I showed my friend. They're like, yeah, man, it just says they're going to reach out to you if they like you. And I literally was convinced they loved us, and – <laughs> it was just silly because totally. um, we were we were bad and like i can admit it i you know but it was fun we had a good time you know um yeah. we got to play some fun shows like we played with digger which was pretty like at the time was a big deal to us because we loved that band and oh they were actually, huge in pennsylvania yeah yeah i remember i i actually like corresponded with the drummer via snail mail um and it was like we got to play with him one show and it was like the coolest thing ever to me and actually still to this day i remember it a and b it was just to put like just to do it was fun it was maybe 20 people there but it was still fucking cool oh absolutely i mean it, <laughs> anytime you get to play those you know early shows where you're playing with a you know, large local band or a national touring band. Like I, uh, Oh, do, uh, I'm sure you remember this band. Uh, you remember that band a day in a life. I know the name. I, I, I don't think, know them. Yeah. I think they were from long Island and I want to say they put out a record on resurrection. I don't know, but I just remember like playing the showcase with them and just being like in awe, like they're from New York and we're playing with them. This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's like, you're, you're like, dude, we're played with Digger. Do you realize how big that is? <laughs> well, to to not to move the interview along a diff, you know uh, to a head, but uh, what's funny now is that the Bouncing Souls have been a client of mine for five years, <laughs> and I hope none of them ever listen to this. But I, I still to this day, I get a text from one of them, and I, I just light up. My life is awesome. Like this rules that this is my life. That eighteen year old me would be sight. You know, and I don't have to look back and go, man, what a bummer I am. Right. Like, I get to talk to this band of 
rad like they're they're amazing people they make amazing music and it's just still cool to me like i get to work with them you know what i mean no dude i i really appreciate that and i think honestly I, I would attribute that attitude to, um, you know, the longevity of your, you know, your career in music. Cause I think a lot of people, it's real easy. Like, I mean, I, I will never forget, like so many people told, um, m- me specifically being like, Oh, like you're too nice. Like you won't, you know, you won't be able to exist in the music industry because you'll become jaded and you'll hate music or whatever. But like, I don't know, I've never found that for myself. And like, it, you are very much a living proof of like, no, dude, I get stoked <laughs> to hear from the bouncing souls. And it's like, that's, a re- I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know where people kind of make the left-hand turn where they do become so callous to that experience of like, oh, I actually like music. Well, I think, <clears throat> I think all it takes is one bad experience. You know, when I got fired by Coheed, um, I left the agency that I was at because I was booking gym class heroes at the time and they were doing great. And I, and the management company was, I will not, I can't say bad to me, but they basically, without saying it so bluntly, were like, if you don't go somewhere else, you're going to lose this band. And I was like, I can't in my heart. I'm like, I can't lose, you know, the, what, you know, the other like really happening project I have. And it was a really challenging experience to thinking I was having my own moment career wise. So I'm going to bigger agency. I'm going to work with bigger bands and all this stuff. And man, it was a, I left all these people I was friends with. Um, top down at the company. I loved everyone. I had a great relationship with everybody, you know, but I knew I had to make that change. It, was, it sucked. And so I think I was pretty miserable for a good five years um, because I'd gone through all this stuff and I had alienated myself from all these friends. Um, so I think it's easy to go down that trap. But then, you know, I signed Frank Turner, who's been like a dream client. I signed Ghost, who's been super fun. I think I found my place in the world and in terms of what I'm good at, you know, how I can be about the best ally for my clients. Um, and I feel more confident in myself. And so I think I'm fortunate that I've stuck around long enough. I've survived, if you will, um, that I get to feel this way. Cause I don't know if I would have felt this way five years, you know, five years in, I might've been an updated. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think it's, it's, um, yeah, it's easy to, you know, bottom out when you do have that experience of, you know, whatever, like you said, you know, losing a band, having something difficult happen to you. Um, but then to be able to, you know, like you said, just, I guess, focus on the reason why you got into this in the first place. I know that sounds like such a walking cl- hardcore cliche or whatever, but no, but it, you know, I will say this, man, you know, I, I said this to you at the beginning, I'm just some dickhead from Pen- Lancaster, Pennsylvania, not a big deal city, you know, I'm still grateful that I get to wake up every morning. I get to wear a crappy band t-shirt and a pair of sneakers, hang out with my kids before I go to work and my wife, go talk about bands for eight, 10 hours, and then come home and hang out with my favorite three people again. That's my life. And that's awesome that this career has led me to that. So yes, I've had ups and downs and I'm sure more are coming because that's just the nature of it. But um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I've never, I've only verbalized this really to one person, but my father-in-law who passed away a year and a half ago, maybe six months before he passed, he made a comment to me. He's like, you're about to be in like the best part of your career. I forget the way he phrased it. He said it much more eloquently and I've never forgotten it. And, and I, I feel like he almost predicted it or maybe I just believed in what he was telling me. And it's kind of almost since he said that it's been really awesome. And I've been able to really experience some of the coolest things ever, but also be able to sit back and enjoy it. Um, 
and enjoy the freedom that it's given me to be, you know, to get into hardcore cliches, just to be myself, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, my first boss in the business was, used to give me shit for being straight edge. And I was like, why, why are you straight edge? If you went to the bar more, you'd get more bands. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, I want my work to speak for itself. Like, I don't like going to the bar. And, you know, I'm 41. I'm still straight edge and still don't go to the bar. And, you know, I, I right. can put food on the table. The rent, the rent is paid and there's my kids have shoes. We're all good. Like, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I was actually going to ask about that. Cause I mean, I myself am, am straight edge to illustrate edge adult. And I, the, the common thing that most people, you know, especially when you exist with, uh, most, you know, quote unquote normal, uh, you know, the, the, the civilians of the world where it's just like, wait, you don't drink like, and you know, you don't have time to explain, you know, the origins of straight edge to them. Um, do most people kind of look at you quizzically where it's just like, Oh, are you super religious or a recovering alcoholic? Um, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know. I really struggle interacting with the, uh, normies. Um, even when we, you know, living in Toronto when, uh, which is a much more friendly environment than New York was as much as I love New York. Um, these people, they're so nice. They want to ask you every question in the world and I'm a standoffish prick. And so I just keep to myself until they finally wear me down. And I'm like, Oh, you're really nice. And now nah, people are usually pretty cool about it. Um, but I, I don't talk to people much. Like I really keep to myself. Um, I'm, I'm loud and I'm abrasive when I'm in work mode, but then when I come home, I just want to shut down and think about watching cartoons and cuddling with the kids and what really crappy, uh, TV show I'm going to watch, but yeah, later at night, but, um, yeah, I don't try to explain it to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and to be very honest with you at this point, the two people in my life that straight edge really matters to is the only people that it means anything to like, it's, it's the three of us. We've been friends since high school. We found it when we were 16. It helped us create our identities. Um, you know, and I don't care who is and who isn't all I care about is the three of us are still straight edge and it still has a significant amount of value to us in our, the fact that we're all still really close friends all these years later. Um, but I don't talk about it, you know, but it still means a lot to me, you know? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're not, you know, advertising it, uh, you know, uh, Nick Storch, the straight edge booking agent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I do assume that they think I'm just a recovering alcoholic. Yes. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And if that's what makes them, what makes it all work and I don't have to explain my life, Cool. All right. right. Whatever works for you, man. Right. So be it. So be it. Yes. Uh, and when you, um, you know, like you said, as you started to kind of, you know, work in these different environments and different agencies and kind of see, you know, the, uh, the scrappy nature of booking, you know, versus the corporate nature of booking, you know, a lot of it is, you know, travels obviously in the same channels. Um, and you've watched the evolution of the business, uh, you know, how I guess in your head, where does it sit now in regards to the um, you know where booking exists in conjunction with the rest of the music industry, where you know clearly you can't uh, replicate a live experience, and you know, but at the same time, people are going to you know fewer shows overall than maybe they did a few years ago. Like you know, where does it sit in your own head, where it's just like, oh, I'm just trying to focus on the day to day work rather than trying to worry about the future. Wait, say that again because you keep cutting out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, I was just it's saying okay. the, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the future of the uh, music industry, as it were, from a booking perspective. Do you try mm-hmm. to just be myopic on like, well, I'm just trying to do the as best of the work as I can for my bands? Or are you trying to, I guess, kind of look at the future as well and be like, well, booking may change in the next couple of years? Um, that's a really good question, actually. 
I'm very focused in on just what's good for my clients. Um, look, change will happen, but the people that are going to affect the most change are the people at the top. Um, that's not to say things can't be changed from the bottom, you know, because it does happen. But I think I just spend so much of my day thinking about what's best to help my artist. What, what's the best decisions that will help them grow but protect what they've built so they can, they can make forward progress in the best case scenario, maintain in the worst case. But in terms of, you know, how the industry is going to change, I don't know. Part of me feels like that's just a waste of my time. Yeah. You know, I, you were reacting to what the audience wants. And, but I, I think that ultimately the consumer will be the ones who really, we have to react to in some regard. You can't really, I don't know. I don't really think about that, man. I, maybe that's lame of me. Maybe that's, I, I really only give a care about what's best for the artist, given the circumstances right now and how I, you know, try to make decisions that foster them to have a, the, as long of a career as they choose to foster the best relationship with their fans that they can have while provide, you know, giving them a chance to provide for their, the best life they can have. Um, that's really what my job is. And so maybe I'm not thinking about it from a 10 year, like how the industry is changing, but I am thinking about it for them and how to update how I'm operating for them. But what works for one doesn't always work for the other. Sure. No, I totally get that. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question, but no, um, it, it does. It does. Yeah, I see exactly what you're. I mean, because there is only so much. No matter what industry you are a part of, from the entertainment perspective, uh, you know, stuff goes through seismic changes. You know, every five to ten years, and you, you know, if you try to predict it, you, most likely you'll be wrong. Like you, you'll you maybe have a sense of it, but yeah, I agree. Look, man, um, I, I try to. I try to always operate from my gut early on in my career before I had a, a real sense of anything. I, I would, I tried a couple projects and I was like, this is going to be huge. I'm going to make a lot of money. And all of them failed miserably. Like not even like halfway up the chain, they didn't go anywhere. And that was a big sign to me of just don't operate from that place. Like operate from passion. Do you like it? Do you believe in it? Do you care about it? Um, you know, and, and success is relative. Um, I mean, look at Cannibal Corpse, 30, over 30 years in the, in, as a band and still going and still respected and, you know, sort of the pillar of that small genre. Um, so, and I think you could say they're successful, um, as abrasive as their music is, but, uh, what was I trying to say here? I mean, I don't know. I lost my place. There's just so much to say about all this stuff. No, um, <laughs> no, I, no, I, well, I appreciate you. Tr you're trying to thread the narrative and I, I understand what you're talking about, especially, when, you know, like a, a agent like yourself where, you know, yes, you travel within the, you know, context of rock music, but you have such a wide variety of bands that success, like you said, means different things. You know, a band like Paul Bear is very different from a band like, you know, Asteroid. And yes, those two things like, you know, w will have completely different goals and you have to understand what those goals are in order to try to achieve that for them. Of course. And, 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 and you know, there's always... To go back to your previous question, I'm not looking to reinvent the business. Let people who have more time in their day to pontificate and, and think about just that stuff, great. Thank you. I'm not doing that. But, you know, um, you know, figuring out how to steal 
a concept from maybe the hip hop world and apply it to a rock band or use a jam band concept and apply, apply that to a singer songwriter or, or, you know, a metal concept and apply it to, you know, there's all kinds of these different operating styles that other genres use that are absolutely applicable to certain artists in completely different genres. Um, you know, uh, an example I use all the time, and I don't know if some people think I'm crazy, but uh, when Lil, right before Lil Wayne, or sorry, about a year or two before Lil Wayne put out the Carter Three, his big record, he guested on everything. He was everywhere, but it was never just his thing. And I felt like that teed him up for such an incredible moment that when he finally dropped the album, all eyes were on him. And I think there's lessons to be learned for artists in the rock space. Um, you know, all kinds of things because I don't know that I will say, I do think like the hip hop community is so is like in way more innovative than the rock space. And maybe that's because making songs is easier. I don't know, probably, but I know that's what I spend my time thinking about big picture. Yeah. It, I, what I like about the, the train of thought that you were saying is that, you know, many people in the music industry become so myopic on what they only focus on and they don't take any principles. It's not like you need to be a super fan of SoundCloud rap to understand the, um, you know, the visceral nature of, like you said, releasing, you know, a song a day for a month or whatever. And people are super excited about it. And it's like, oh, well, maybe we can take some idea of that. Maybe not a song a day, but maybe if we released a song a week and got people hyped up or whatever. It's like you have to take those ideas from disparate places and put them together. Exactly. And, like, you see how, I mean, yeah, man, it's it's all right in front of you if you really want to do it and, like, pay attention to it. Um, and you don't have to. You know, I've always tried to say that, like, the kind of agent I am may not fit for every act. Or it's not going to fit for every act. And that's okay. It took me a long time to understand that. Um, you know, and so, yeah, there's so much to take from the world if you want to, and, and that's okay. You could just be a guy who just wants to, or a woman who wants to just book dates. That's cool too. You know, um, that's not how I like to operate. You know, I, I cherish the creative process and if, and if an artist says, you know, come on in, let's, you know, here's merch design, here's a tour idea. What do you have of this? What about that? And you know, that's my favorite part of all this. Right, right, for sure. Not because I want to be friends with these people. Like, that's what I started at, but because I want to help them with what the, their endeavors are. Sure. You want to be part of their creative process. Very much so. The uh, two last things I want to hit on before I let you go. One of them sure. is the, you know, as you were, um, you know, starting to, you know, book bands and starting to, you know, build your name as a booking agent and stuff like that. When did you feel yourself, and it doesn't even have to be like a quote unquote big victory where it's like, oh, dude, you know, I had like seven sold out tours in a row or whatever. Um, you know, when did you start to feel like uh, that this was like a real thing that you were doing and like, oh, wow, like, you know, I I actually am able to, you know, pay my rent with this and that sort of stuff. Oof. Um, Probably about like almost 10 years in um, when I was just constantly traveling and you know, at the, you know, uh, I, you know, Coheed was doing great. I had a Treyu. I had uh, Azalea dying. I had, you know, when the metalcore thing was big, the first time, you know, I had a bunch of those bands. And I'm a single guy living in New York, working for an agency that was super supportive. So I think that was the start of it. Um, but I feel like I've had kind of another chapter recently with, you know, Ghost going from clubs to theaters to now arenas and. You know, some of these other projects that I'm a part of that are just completely different from the rock space that are now in like real theaters. And I get to book really classy places that I'm like, I don't belong here, but they're letting us put this show here. Um, 
you know, and I've had experience working with kids bop and a comedian and um, to be able to navigate those conversations. That's when it starts to feel even more real. Um, so sure. Was, it's, it's an evolving thing, really. You know, it, every I feel like every few years and I feel like I'm living in one right now. I'm like, this is cool, man. Like I get to keep living this cool life. I get to, you know, I keep getting up, maybe up a level. I don't know. I think I just keep getting grateful that I got to the level that I'm at and I, but I'm trying not to ever focus on where I haven't been, but just be thankful for where I am. And then it just keeps feeling like it's getting better and better and more real, even though it's been 19 years. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I, to your point. Yeah. I think it's like when you do get to um, play in a world that you had no, um, I guess vision for, you know, where it was like, yeah, it's a band like ghost is a prime example where you're like, Oh yeah, I don't, th- these nice rooms wouldn't allow a, you know, band that is sounds like this and looks like this to ever play there. But uh, wow, I guess this is real. Totally. It was, it was one of the coolest. I remember when we went to King's theater in Brooklyn and I do remember vividly walking in the room and going, dude, they should not be letting us play here. <laughs> and it was one of the cool, and now I've done, I've my, I did another show there this fall. I've got another show this coming fall there. And I'm just so excited about it. Cause it's just a gorgeous room. And here I am this tattooed, you know, guy in shitty t-shirts getting to, you know, do this. And, um, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, it kind of, you know, along the same point as, you know, when people, you know, run into the, you know, art of, uh, business and commerce mm-hmm. versus, you know, their own personal preference. Like you said, you had to be able to discern whether you had to listen to your own personal preference versus something that's like, Oh dude, this is going to make so much sense business wise. Um, but you've seen to be pretty consistent over picking bands of like, oh yeah, this band I just like, so I'm going to book it. <laughs> and I, I mean, it, it seems, um, you know, like, of course that can't be like 97% of your roster. Like, of course you need to pepper them in with things where it's like, oh yes, like not only do I like this, but it does make business uh, sense. Um, you know, how did you kind of, I guess, how do you navigate that process of being able to kind of make those calls internally? Uh, I'll it goes back to the story I said about the coheat thing. Um, Tim Bohr was like, okay, you can sign this, but you're going to be booking cannibal corpse. And at the time I was like, who? No, I don't want to. I was like cannibal corpse pissing razors. And I forget who else was on the tour. And he was at his desk snickering. Cause I was saying cannibal corpse and pissing razors, you know, day after day for a while, booking a tour for him. And he finally just sit me down. He's like, look, man, you got to figure out how to cover your, yourself while you're developing these bands you love because if they don't work well how what's your how are you justifying their existence and so i found a way i i was able to reconcile it because i also fell in love with some of that with those bands you know it wasn't i was never a death metal kid i didn't find any of those bands until you know way later um but then i found a, i really love working with icons of a genre um even if they're a small genre um to work with Cannibal Corpse now after all these years is like one of the most rewarding, like it means a lot to me. Like to some people that have no idea who they are, but to the people that know, it's like, man, there's a band that continues to grow. And uh, I don't know. You have to find a reason. And sometimes it's the people and, and not the music or it's their legacy, but you don't love the new music or I don't know. There's reasons and there's, you have to balance it all. You know, I, 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 I'm not ignorant to the fact that power, that money gives you power in your job to open doors to do more fun stuff. And so I may have to book something that I don't love, you know, 
maybe you know a big way but i get to sign you know i can name you a bunch of bands i've signed just on pure i'm just doing this and we'll see what happens and sometimes i've been really handsomely rewarded by that so uh, you know yeah i would say in the last five years all of my passion projects became my big earners so it's really allowed me to transition fully more fully into do i love it cool i'll do it do i like it or do i not like it nope not touching it bye you know (laughs) and you know it's funny i had this conversation with another agent yesterday at the end of the day my desire is not to be a multimillionaire and fly on private planes and um you know do that kind of have that life if that happens by great decision making fantastic not gonna be mad about it but that's not my goal my goal is to be to work with music i love to be around good people to be around great art um collect great t-shirts from my clients um and that's really you know and it's you know obviously i'm older i have kids i want to provide a good life for my family but it's really all my i desire you know i don't want a big house i don't even want a car um just want to be around great music that i i that i decide is great music sure you know Sure. No, I totally get that. Um, and the, the last thing, you know, being, uh, how many kids do you have? Do you have two or just one? I have two. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, coming up in the world that, you know, we have in regards to, you know, going against the grain and, you know, but at the same time, like we can be responsible adults. Um, the, you know, the notion of viewing your world through that prism and then also obviously raising a child, um, you know, how, how would you kind of connect that sort of, you know, do it yourself nature and, you know, what you've learned from, you know, your, uh, that background. And then how does that inform your role as kind of a dad and a father? Great question. Um, I think for me, the only thing I really try to take from it, well, A, I can't force anything on them because all it's going to make them resent whatever I'm forcing eventually on them. But I think we've just tried really hard because my wife is, you know, cut from a similar cloth. Um, we don't love the same bands, but we definitely have the same bug and love, you know, the same, have the same ethos. I just think we just, we want our kids to feel comfortable to be whoever they want to be. That's really as far as it goes. Um, that's the root of it for, for me was always just to feel comfortable to be not into, you know, wanting to be a lawyer or a doctor or any of that stuff. And to thank God, find, find the flyer that I found to do what I do now. But I just think we try to leave it simple as let them feel supported, let them feel it's okay to be however different or unique they want or not. You know, I can't, I don't want, if one of my kids just wants to be a normie, like, you know, play on the football team and do all the normal stuff, that's cool too. That's their choice, you know, but they feel comfortable in their own skin through it, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. I, I think that, you know, <laughs> it's funny because that, I, I think that idea, like while it sounds kind of, you know, maybe basic and simple, a lot of people, you know, try to mold their children in their own likeness because that's kind of, you know, sort of a a weird instinctual thing. You know, it's like, Oh, they're my genes. So of course they're going to be into the same thing. And it's like, nah, like they're, they're, they're their own person. And sometimes it takes a while. (laughs) Yeah. It's what it takes a while for people to get that. It's not going to work. I mean, I've tried even to get to my, get my oldest to wear band t-shirts and he'll wear them because he knows it makes me happy, but he doesn't care. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't want to hear the music. You know, and maybe that'll change, but I've kind of been like, look, you'll like whatever you're going to like. Let me offer this disclaimer before I say what I want to say, but I'm not a parenting genius. I'm not a professional. (laughs) I'm figuring this out as I go, just like everybody else. But, you know, 
I was fortunate to grow up with two parents that, that from zero to 18 always loved me, you know, despite any issues that they had, I did always feel loved and supported. And, you know, through my wife and kind of how she is, and I feel like it's brought us to a place where just, just love them, be affectionate with them, care about them. And I think everything will blossom from there. Yes, obviously it's more complicated than that, but I think that's the root of it. If your kids feel loved and supported, they'll feel comfortable to explore all the things they want to do to create their own identity. And then it goes from there. And I, you know, I do think that comes from our backgrounds, you know, being comfortable to find a, a group of people that, Hey, you're going to the bouncing shows, soul show at the warehouse. Sick. Let's go. And then there's this community that you meet and all the ties back together and make you feel comfortable, you know, cause that's all y'all are looking for is connection. Totally. Yeah. You, you know, community so. and trying to find other people that, you know, not only have maybe similar interests, but yeah, that make you feel less alone. Cause otherwise we're just wandering this world completely being like, I don't know. Exactly. And you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all I can, you know? Yeah. So I could talk about this stuff for days. Like now if you, you, you probably shouldn't ask me any more questions about parenting because i'll go on for hours hey, it's okay man i i've i i am a, a father of an eight-year-old and so yeah it's a it's a it's a real thing especially coming from you know the world that we've come from because it just you know it's not it's not unique for parents being raised in punk just because you know generationally speaking that was an opportunity for many of our parents because you know that was a weird thing like they right they couldn't they couldn't really get into the sex pistols because it's like no that was not on their radar or you know for many reasons so Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look, I hope and pray that, you know, they take an interest in this, the stuff that I'm into, but they don't, that's okay too. Um, I will, I'll leave you with this story. So I bought my son, Henry, a minor threat t-shirt and he wore it to his second day of first grade. And we're sitting at dinner, uh, that day, that night. And I was like, so Henry, what did your friends think of your shirt? And in my head, I'm like, oh, they're going to think this is so cool. Or one of his teachers is going to walk up and be like, man, that's a cool t-shirt. And he was like, dad, nobody knows what this is. Yeah. <laughs> Just you do. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, correct. <laughs> so I, I, I've kind of cooled off on buying him band T-shirts. He has, you know, he's only really gotten one new in the last long while because he, he doesn't care. The only one he really notices that is that he has a Metallica one and I have way too many. And that's really kind of as far as it goes. So <laughs> Right. He's like, oh, this is a shirt that matches my daddy's shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And, but now at this point, it's just another t-shirt in a pile that works. But I would imagine if you give him a choice, he doesn't care. I tried to get him to wear a Slayer shirt forever that our that friends gave us. No way. I have to bribe him with extra TV just to take a picture to say thank you. Like, just doesn't care. <laughs> I love, I love that. Hey, son, I'll, 15 more minutes of, uh, of TV time, just as long as I can snap you, snap you in this Slayer shirt. <laughs> That happened. That it actually happened. Um, cause the people that manage ghost also manage Slayer and they sent us a lovely care package of, you know, band shirts for our kids. And I love one of my favorite things in the world is wear a mildly offensive t-shirt in front of people who don't get it. And <laughs> right. so to wear like a classic Eagle Slayer shirt with your kid is awesome. And I was like, come on, please. We got this gift. It's really cool. Nope. Come on, please take a picture. Nope. nope. And like, just won't do it. And finally I was like, do you want to snap? You want some ice cream? So I have to trade to get those pictures. Otherwise, they just don't happen. He runs. He's like, no, I'm not taking your picture with you. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's uh, 
maybe one of these days, but then at the same time, it's just like, well, you know, it'll be, you know, more meaningful and more organic if, uh, you know, he circles back and is like, Hey dad, all that stuff that you were like, kind of trying to show me, I'm, I'm interested now. And he's like, you know, 15, 16 years old. <laughs> uh, you know, what's funny is I bought so many like music books over the years and tattoo books. And part of me bought them just to leave them on the shelf that in hopes in 10 years, he just takes a stroll and goes, what is this? And opens it up and, you know, let him discover it. Cause you know, if you force something on anyone, TV show, movie, music, anything, they're not really going it, to, it's not the same as their own discovery process of being like, yo, I found this thing. So totally leave little, leave little nuggets for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the access is there. I'm just, I'm just going to let it hopefully through osmosis permeate into them. <laughs> Dear God, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, this has been so much fun. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it, man. Well, thanks for having me. And I hope I didn't ramble too crazy. That was rad. I really, really appreciated Nick walking me through because booking agents and, you know, people that put together tours, um, you know, I don't care on what level, whether it's you're doing it for your own band or whether you're doing it at the level that Nick is at. It's, it is such a thankless job, you know? It's not like anybody that attends a show is thinking in the back of their head, oh man, I'm so glad for the booking agent for booking this tour. <laughs> it just it just never happens. And, you know, I myself, uh, you know, booked a lot of shows for my band. I booked festivals and there is a gratification, not like you expect people to say thank you for the things that you do, but there's a certain level of gratification that, uh, you know, when you're able to kind of collectively gather a large group of people in a room, that just feels so unbelievable. And I know Nick really revels in that feeling as well. So thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate that. And next week, we have a great discussion with J.B. Brubaker from August Burns Red. August Burns Red, just the metalcore legends, as it were. <laughs> But JB was kind enough to uh, take some time out of his uh, busy, well, actually, it wasn't busy. He canceled some time, uh, you know, on a tour, but we hung out and had fun. So that's what we got next week. Until then, please be safe, everybody.